Okay, the title of the message this morning is Spiritual Gifts Part 2. I'd like to thank Pastor Steve for reading all of that. It was a lot to read, but it's necessary for us to look at the context out of the shoot, which I hope that did for you as you followed along. <clears throat> Last week, we embarked upon our journey into the realm of spiritual gifts. We left off talking about the cessationist belief that espouses the notion that when Paul speaks of the, quote, perfect coming and the partial being done away with in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10, that he meant the canon of Scripture. Remember, we looked at that last week when the perfect comes. Some people believe that that is about the closing of the canon of Scripture. Many cessationists believe, and by the way, I'm, I'm not going to go and redefine all the terms that we talked about last week because of the time factor. We just don't have enough time to do that. But um, the sermon from last week will be up later today on Sermon Audio. And so if you want to listen to that to review the terms and the definitions, it'll be there for you to do that. So like I was saying, many, many cessationists believe that according to Paul, the sign gifts would cease because no new revelations from the Lord were necessary when, when the canon became closed um, because they believed the canon was complete and perfect in and of itself, okay? Ergo, put it another way, no, no new revelation from God aside from the Bible was or is necessary because the canon of Scripture is finally put together as, as a whole. And as such, all we need from here until the Lord, from now until the Lord returns, is in that Scripture. We don't need any special revelations from God outside of the canon of Scripture, the cessationist says, okay? That means that these sign gifts were only necessary as a means for God to reveal those things to us until the canon of Scripture was finished. And now that it is finished, we no longer need to seek revelation through spiritual gifts because God has revealed all in His Word. That's one of the cessationist arguments, those that believe that sign gifts have ceased um, with the closing of the canon. If you were here last week, um, we exhausted, pretty much exhausted, the fact that the perfect um, is actually not the closing of the canon, but is instead something else entirely. The majority, folks, when I say... I try not to make blanket statements unless they're true. The majority, and I say that without reservation, of biblical interpreters have concluded that that word perfection there refers to the second coming of Christ and not the completing of the canon of Scripture. If the perfect was a reference to the closing of the canon of Scripture, 
then we should expect a number, a vast number of Bible scholars in the history of the church to have held this view, the view that when the perfect comes, okay, that sign gifts are no longer needed, that view. However, this is not what we find. Uh, The majority of Bible scholars do not address this. Um, They don't use the terms that are being used here because they simply did not believe it, like cessationists believe it. And we don't find it in their writings. I mean, in my opinion, we don't find it in their writings because it didn't make any sense. Uh, It made no biblical sense. It, it, It requires a stretch of the imagination, as I talked about last week. But I'd like to point out a couple of additional reasons this week, okay, in addition to last week. Non-cessationists or continuationists, those that believe that the sign gifts are to continue today, we'll call them continuationists, believe that perfection, as I said, refers to the coming of Christ. They hold that the sign gifts are intended for the present church age, but will no longer be needed when Christ returns, when the perfect comes and we know him as he is. How have they reached this conclusion? It's important that we know, painstakingly know how they reached this conclusion. Who's right about it? Both sides can't be correct. So please listen carefully. Paul says that, When the perfect comes, we will see God face to face. Did you see God face to face when the canon of scriptures closed? Can't be what he's talking about then. Paul says that, I'm going to read it again. When the perfect comes, we will see God face to face. The phrase face to face is used in the Old Testament to mean seeing God personally. It is used in Genesis chapter 32, verse 30, where Jacob wrestles with God. And afterwards, Jacob asks this person he's wrestling with. He says, what is your name? And the Lord says, why is it that you ask my name? And he, God, blessed him there, blessed Jacob, the scripture says. And Moses, who wrote Genesis, says, So Jacob named the place Peniel, P-E-N-I-E-L. The word Peniel means, guess what? The face of God. Now, why would Jacob use that, that term? For Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Revelation chapter 22, verse 4 says that in heaven they will see, we will see his face, Christ's face. The scriptures reveal much about God, but they do not allow for a face-to-face meeting with God. This will come when Christ returns and when we receive our glorified State or a glorified body. That's a state of perfection, by the way. When you're in glory, 
and you've received your glorified body, you're in your glorified state. You know Christ face to face because you're in heaven. Pretty perfect, no pun intended. Actually, the pun was intended. Anyhow, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul says that for us, when perfection comes, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. No more glass dimly, face to face. We will know the perfect Christ. Here's my main point, church. The scriptures help us to know many things. But as I said before, it can't be said that we know God fully because of the scriptures alone. God will be known fully or completely to his people when his son returns. If you've been attending Abiding Grace Church for the past year, you have probably heard at least one of our pastors quote or refer to a guy named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. D for Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was an Englishman, and so Lloyd is spelled the English way. Um, Martin is typically spelled with a Y instead of an I. If you're looking for his stuff, just be aware of that, okay? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' books occupy a very large section of my personal library. Why? Well, read him yourself and read about his life and you will get it. You will understand why I have so many D. Martin Lloyd-Jones books. No time for details this morning other than I'll tell you this. Uh, he was a renowned medical doctor turned preacher. He pastored Westminster Chapel, which was a congregational church in London from 1939 to 1968. So he left the medical field, went into ministry. And Lloyd-Jones broke company. Listen, Lloyd-Jones broke company with many of his contemporaries who were insistent on cessationism. They were insistent that the sign gifts stopped at the closing of the canon. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones rejected the view that the word perfect refers to that canon. He says this, quote, long quote, do you see what that involves, he says? It means that you and I who have the scriptures open before us know much more than the Apostle Paul of God's truth. If that argument is correct, the cessationist argument, he says, it means that we are altogether superior to the early church and even to the apostles themselves, including the Apostle Paul. The quote-unquote then, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, is the glory everlasting. It is only then that I shall know, even also as I am known, he, he quotes Paul, for then I shall see him, 
Christ as he is, face to face. In other words, those who came after Paul, like Lloyd-Jones and you, with your closed, perfect canon, would have known more than Paul because the perfect, okay, the perfect closing of that canon didn't come until very long after Paul's exit from this planet. Do you understand what I'm saying? The concept of a closed canon would not have even occurred to them, as I said last week. A far more common theme in the scripture is the perfect coming theme, is a reference to, as I said, the return of Christ and our glorified state, not the closing of the canon of scripture. For that is the only time that we see him face to face in our glorified state. When Paul pointed his Corinthian readers to a future day when we would see Christ face to face, they are far more likely to have thought of Christ's coming back, his return, not the closing of a canon that they had never heard of and books, other books that made that canon later who they didn't even know were floating around at the time. They had no idea that a Bible would one day exist in their lifetime. For these reasons and many others laid out in the Bible and in scholarly biblical literature, the most reasonable interpretation, folks, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 12, is that Paul is teaching that the gifts will cease when Jesus Christ returns, not when the New Testament canon is closed. Lloyd-Jones concludes this, his, I should say, summary of the cessation arguments with the typical bluntness of Lloyd-Jones. This isn't me. This is him. He says, quote, let me begin to answer by giving you just one thought. The scriptures never anywhere say that these things were only temporary. Never, exclamation point, he says. There is no such statement anywhere. So you see the difficulties men land themselves in when they dislike something and cannot fully understand it and try to explain it away. I couldn't concur more, which is why I chose Martin Lloyd-Jones regarding this text. You also have to understand Martin Lloyd-Jones is reformed just like we are, reformed soteriology, reformed view of salvation. Um, he was a five-point Calvinist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not quoting someone that is out of the orthodoxy of what we believe or out of the realm of what we hold dear to. This is a guy that most reformers read. When I say reformers, I mean people who espouse a reformed soteriology. They read Lloyd-Jones. Okay, another cessation argument is as follows. The miraculous or sign gifts ceased with the last apostle. That's another argument that those use, that, that those who are cessationists use to say um, why 
these gifts ceased. They ended with the last apostle. B.B. Warfield. Anybody heard of B.B. Warfield? Great theologian. Uh, Well-known and respected theologian and professor who taught at Princeton Seminary when it was actually a seminary. Um, He wrote a book in 1918 called Counterfeit Miracles, which is still um, the classic statement of this position that the sign gifts were given only to the apostles, B.B. Warfield said, only to the apostles and to Stephen and Philip. Warfield taught that the purpose of these gifts was to authenticate the apostles as trustworthy bearers of Scripture. So in other words, God's going to do these signs, sign gifts, so that everyone will believe what the apostles are telling them and the doctrine that the apostles spew forth. However, um, B.B. Warfield would also say that when the last apostle died, that authenticating power died with him. Most of the contemporary works written from, from the cessationist camp are, in effect, a footnote to B.B. Warfield's work. Warfield wrote, quote, listen to this. It is very clear from the record of the New Testament that the extraordinary charismata, charismata, charismatic, it's the word that's used to talk about sign gifts here this morning, okay? Um, It is very clear from the record of the New Testament that the extraordinary charismata were not after the very first days of the church, were not the possession of all Christians, but were supernatural gifts to the few. These gifts were not the possession of the primitive Christian church as such, nor for that matter of the apostolic church or the apostolic age for themselves. They were distinctly for the authentication authentication of the apostles' teaching. They were part of the credentials of the apostles as the authoritative agents of God in founding the church. Their function thus confined them to distinctively the apostolic church and they necessarily passed away with it. So B.B. Warfield is taking the complete opposite view of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now the primary, put that on the back burner of your mind, the primary texts used by cessationists to support the claim that miraculous gifts were the sole property of the apostles include these. I'm going to read them to you. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. Acts 5.12 The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. 2 Corinthians 12.12 This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Where do we know that from? Hebrews 2, 3 and 4. 
I believe that Warfield is correct in affirming the uniqueness, I'll call it, of the apostolic office. The 12 apostles certainly did enjoy unique, wonder-working power. But the major problem with Warfield's argument, however, is that its conclusion does not follow from its premises. Premises? It's premises. Premises. Laura? Premises? Premises. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I missed that, Steve. What you say? Exactly. Um, the argument, okay, can be broken down into a syllogism. Major premise. The apostles, as the foundation of the church, experienced unique wonder-working powers to authenticate their ministry. Okay, that's the major premise. The, the, the minor premise, are you ready? The apostles are dead. Okay, so we've got the apostles who were the foundation of the church. They experienced unique wonder-working powers to authenticate their ministry. But, minor premise, the apostles are dead. Conclusion. No one experiences wonder-working power in ministry today. Nobody, because the apostles are dead. The conclusion does not follow the minor premise that the apostles are dead. While it is true that the apostles had unique miraculous powers, and it is true that they are dead, it does not logically follow that no other Christians can experience a miraculous gift or a miraculous happening in the body of Christ. What if we said, okay, major premise, only the apostles planted churches in Acts. Minor premise, the apostles are dead. Conclusion, no one should plant churches today. Doesn't make any sense, does it? It's illogical. All that is needed, folks, to refute this view from a scriptural standpoint, okay? We could find many examples of non-apostolic Christians using miraculous gifts in the New Testament. We will look at many examples of miraculous gifts being used in the New Testament by people who are not apostles. You ready? You're going to want to write these down, these scripture references, Mark 9, 38 and 39. Here we see an unknown man cast out demons in Jesus' name. Wasn't an apostle. How about Luke chapter 10, verse 9? Jesus commissioned 72 disciples to preach and to heal. They were not apostles. How about Acts 9, 17 and 18? Ananias heals the apostle Paul. Ananias was not an apostle. Romans 12, 6, Paul refers to the gift of prophecy in Rome. Listen, a church, the church in Rome had not yet been visited by any of the apostles at that time. But they're exercising the gift of prophecy, the sign gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Gifts of healing and miracles were experienced in the Corinthian church. 
without an apostle present. How about Galatians chapter 3 verse 5? Paul refers to the Holy Spirit who works miracles among you. The you is plural and must refer to the entire congregation, if not the entire body of Christ, which was not led at that time by an apostle. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 Paul demands that the Thessalonians not hinder the prophetic gift. Hmm. Stephen, what about Stephen? Was one of the seven men chosen to serve as a deacon in the early church. We see this in Acts 6, 1 through 7. We are told by Luke, the author of Acts, that Stephen was, quote, full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and he performed great wonders and signs among the people. He was not an apostle. He was a deacon. Then there's Philip. Philip was also one of the seven chosen to serve as deacons in Acts 6. He later became known for his evangelistic ministry, preaching in Samaria and baptizing many he performed miracles, including casting out unclean spirits and healing the paralyzed and the lame. You can see that in Acts 8, 4 through 8, and Acts 8, 26 through 40. He, okay, is not to be confused with Philip, one of the 12 apostles. There was Philip, who was one of the 12 and then there was Philip, who wasn't, okay? But yet, he was hanging on the coattails of this Christianity. Those who had been scattered, okay, during the persecution, preached the word wherever they went, we are told. And Philip, the evangelist, not one of the 12, but the evangelist, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed or lame that were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Philip wasn't an apostle. What about Ananias? He was a disciple of Jesus in Damascus. He was sent to the Lord to lay hands on Saul, later known as the Apostle Paul, to restore his sight after he was blinded on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, 10 and 19. What about Barnabas, folks? Barnabas was a companion of Paul, and he played a significant role in the early church. He was known for his encouragement, generosity, and ministry. Acts 14.3 describes how both Paul and Barnabas performed signs and wonders attesting to the message of the gospel. Barnabas wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. It's not me. Okay. I'm right here. Agabus. I like Agabus. 
Agabus was a prophet mentioned in the book of Acts, Acts 11, 27 and 28, Acts 21, 10 and 11. Agabus accurately prophesied a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world during the time of Claudius, as well as Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem. He also prophesied that. But he wasn't an apostle. How about Dorcas, who I would rather call Tabitha? Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, was a disciple in Joppa, known for her acts of charity and kindness. When she died, Peter prayed for her, and she was raised from the dead. How about Priscilla and Aquila? While they are not explicitly mentioned performing miracles, Priscilla and Aquila were a couple who played a significant role in the early church. They were instrumental in teaching Apollos more accurately about the way of God. Remember that? Acts 18, 24 through 28. The bottom line, folks, is that these individuals, though not part of the 12 apostles, played crucial roles in the spreading of the gospel in the early church through their faithfulness, through their ministry, and the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. I want you all to see that plainly, which is why I gave so many examples. And while the unique ministry of the apostles is honored and revered, it cannot be inferred from their ministry that the miraculous gifts were limited to and died with them. That's my whole point. You can't say that. This notion simply is not backed by Scripture. In fact, the opposite is backed by Scripture. Another argument used by cessationists goes like this. Church history proves that all evidence of the miraculous gifts passed away after the first century. This argument, by the way, filled the bulk of Warfield's pages and has been popular in cessationist writings ever since, that the gifts ceased because the first century closed, folks. Two responses are in order here, I think. First, even if it could be proved, proven, that the gifts passed away in the history of the church, this does not prove that God will not grant them again at a different time. Hence, let me interject. I talk to missionaries from all over the world. And there are a lot of things happening in other countries in Christendom that don't happen here. Miraculous things happen there that don't happen here. I'm not going to get into why I think that is. Um, I just want you to make note of it, okay? That's the, the first thing. Second thing, history does not prove that the miraculous gifts passed away. 
Stanley Burgess, Professor Emeritus at Missouri State University and the author of many books on the movement of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of the church, wrote this, quote, Before John Chrysostom in the East and Augustine of Hippo in the West, no church father suggested that any or all of the charismata were intended only for the first century church. He's right. Try and find an early church father who was prolific, who wrote a lot. John Chrysostom wrote a lot. Okay, Augustine, his confessions, the book entitled His Confessions and his book entitled The City of God. Everybody should have it in their library. Everybody should read it. Read both of those books. But Chrysostom, you can find him in the history of the Christian church. Philip Schaff's history of the Christian church. All of his writings are in there and they are pro prolific. Okay? But, despite all these writings, we don't see any church father putting forth the notion that the sign gifts ended after the first century. Remember, not that long ago, I had made a connection between the phrase early church fathers and the word patristics. Remember that? Patristics, okay, patriarchy. Patristics is the study of the church fathers. Or if I refer to patristics, I'm referring to the church fathers without saying church fathers. Are you with me? Somebody's smile. So, let's move into the patristic era, era of the church fathers. I'm going to call it AD 100 to 600, okay? An early second century document that I've quoted 500,000 times in here, the Didache, was written to ministers. It exhorted the church to, quote, permit the prophets to give thanks as much as they desire and then proceeded to give instruction on how prophetic utterances were to be tested in the early church Justin Martyr huge huge church father 100 to 165 reminds fellow Christians in a letter that many he says quote many of our Christian men have healed and do heal, rendering helpless and driving out the possession of devils. Now, why would he write that if it wasn't something going on in the church at the time? Do you think he fabricated it? Do you think he saw things? Do you think he was hallucinating? He's growing mushrooms? How about Irenaeus? Um, one of the biggies, okay? systematized our theology came against um, heresy apologetically he says quote we do also hear many brethren in the church who possess prophetic gifts and who through the spirit speak all kinds of languages and bring to light for general benefit the hidden things of men 
Those who are in truth his disciples do certainly and truly drive out devils so that those who have thus been cleansed from evil spirits frequently both believe and join themselves to the church. Sounds like something was going on there. And how about Oregon? Church father writing in the third century. He reported that signs and wonders validated the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel has a uh, demonstration of its own in this, he says. Manifestation of the spirit of power is what he calls it. Manifestation of the spirit, I should say, and of power. Then there's the Latin theologian, one that's fun to say, Hilary of Portier, writing in the fourth century, affirmed that the miraculous gifts were operating in his day. Quote, the gift of the spirit is manifest where there is, I'm, I'm going to ad lib here, I'm going to, if you were to read this quote completely, it would be two pages long, but I'm picking out the important things here. The gift of the Holy Spirit is manifest where there is, where, the, where there is the Holy Spirit manifest. The gift of healings, okay, that by the cure of the disease, we should bear witness to his grace or by the working of miracles or by prophecy or by discerning spirits or by kinds of tongues that the speaking in tongues may be bestowed as a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit or by the interpretation of tongues. Wow. There's, I could do a sermon series just on that quote. But we won't. Finally, Augustine. Augustine, Augustine, who wrote in the late 4th century, early 5th century, probably... I'm going to say the most important church father in the first seven centuries. And he believed, this is interesting, he believed that the gift of tongues was not given to the church in his day, but that the gift of miracles was. Stick out in your pipe and smoke it for a minute. In a fascinating chapter, in his book, The City of God, um, to, to be exact, <clears throat> book 22, chapter 8, if you want to look it up, Augustine emphasizes the transformative power of Christ's miracles, which not only address physical ailments, but also liberate souls, he says, from the bondage of sin and the influence of evil spirits. Then he says, numerous healings, exorcisms, and visions, okay, were regarded in his own congregation, Augustine's congregation. Many miracles were wrought. The same God who wrought those we read of still performs them today, he says. That, that was Augustine, Augustine, not me. These passages from the city of God, folks, reflect, I think, Augustine's understanding of miracles as an integral part of the Christian faith, demonstrating the power and authority of Christ and affirming the truth of the gospel message. They also highlight Augustine's broader theological concerns, including the relationship between the city of God and the city of man. You have to read the book to understand that. 
um, the nature of divine providence and the significance of miracles in the life of the church. For Augustine to say those things, and if you read his Enchiridion, which I can't remember which volume that is in Philip Schaff's, Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church, but if you read his writings, Augustine's, you will see plainly that he believed in miracles for the church at the time he lived. Would you be surprised to find Martin Luther writing the following advice to a pastor who sought his counsel in ministering to a sick man? Would you believe that Luther wrote the following? Quote, I know of no worldly advice to give. If the physicians are at a loss to find a remedy, you may be sure it is not a case of ordinary melancholy. Not a reason to get bummed out or depressed. It must rather be an affliction that comes from the devil and must be counteracted by the power of Christ and the prayer of faith. Must be counteracted. And it should proceed as follows. Graciously, now again, forgive me, this is, there's some Elizabethan English in here. Um, graciously, Luther says, deign, that's D-E-I-G-N, um, deign to free this man from evil and bring to naught the work that Satan has done in him. Then, when you depart, lay your hands on the man again and say, quote, these signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. He's telling them to lay hands on this sick guy and recite Mark 16, 17, and 18, where the apostles, the disciples, are told to lay hands on the sick. He's telling the church to do the same thing. And once again, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he helped to foster a renewed interest, as I said before, in Reformed theology. And he writes the following. There is evidence from many of those Protestant reformers and fathers. Now, think about who he's talking about here. Think about all the people in history who have been labeled or have labeled themselves as Reformed. This is evidence from many of those Protestant reformers and fathers that some of them had a genuine, true gift of prophecy. Then he says, read their books. You will find this gift of prophecy and you'll find the occasional miracle. Anyone who is prepared to say that all this ended in the apostolic age and that there has never been a miracle since the apostles gives the lie that quenches the Holy Spirit. Yikes. Martin Lloyd-Jones is quite blunt, isn't he? Okay, let's stop here for today. I'm still setting the table, folks, um, this week as well as last week. I'm just trying to get you familiar with 
some names that we're going to concentrate on further as we go along. Christian giant names. Um, I want to familiarize you with what different people in history have said who are respected people and their writings are not to be taken lightly. And I wanted to get the patristics and all that out of the way this week because um, we're going to start digging into more specific scriptures about this. And I just hope and pray, I pray that by the fifth or sixth sermon, you guys are going to see why I approached it from the backside, sort of, if that makes any sense. Let's pray.